First, though, we want to talk about something that has been in the news this morning. A new report released today. It looks at the involuntary mental health treatment for BC youth and the increase that we've seen during the past 10 years. And joining me to talk more about that is BC's representative for children and youth, Jennifer Charlesworth. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jill. Well, when you look at the numbers and to hear the number 162% is the increase from 2008-2009 to 2017-2018, sounds like a huge number. And with the numbers going from 973 young people to more than 2,500, that is such a big jump. Does the report shine light on why we're seeing such an increase? That's a great question, and we have some speculation in the report, but one of the things we found when we did a deep dive into this was that there's a lack of data to help us understand exactly why is it that we're seeing an increase. I think it has to do in part with the lack of voluntary mental health services in the province, and therefore this more extreme measure may feel to some families and young people and medical practitioners as the only choice they have. Because uh, I was originally thinking, well, maybe it's also partly because we're recognizing mental health issues more. We're recognizing more scenarios where mental health needs some kind of attention, but then realize that doesn't then really explain why we're talking about this big jump in involuntary mental health services. Uh, how do we go about finding out, do you think, then, if it is because there's there's a gap or a hole when it comes to voluntary? Mm-hmm. Well, I think prior reports that we've done and certainly reports that others have done have illuminated that there is a gap. In fact, we released a report that was commissioned from Simon Fraser University's Center for Children's Health Policy. Um, on It was focused on the impact of COVID on mental health amongst young people. And Dr. Charlotte Waddell and her team pointed out that we entered into this pandemic with a woefully inadequate child and youth mental health system anyway. So for sure, we've already demonstrated that we don't have sufficient mental health services. But you raise a, make a very good point, Jill, is that really understanding why it is that this involuntary detention is escalating and what's behind that and who is being detained is something that we think is so important because you can't plan your way out of something if you don't know what's going on. So that's one of the recommendations we make is we need more data. And I think that's uh, shared across the board of recognizing we need to understand better what this phenomenon is. And looking at some of the other numbers in the age range in this report from the young people that spoke about this and offered up their experiences so that we could try and learn from this. I know they've come from many different cities around BC. The time of first admission ranging from age 10 to age 18. I know the report references this as well. At what age, up until what age, are are youth able to be involuntarily put into treatment? Well, the reality is under the Mental Health Act, which, by the way, was drafted in 1964, so it's a pretty old act, despite some amendments over the time. But basically, it allows for anyone to be detained involuntarily. It actually is not an act that was ever designed with a separate section or separate attention to children youth um, themselves. So it's really an act that covers the whole broad range of ages. So you could have a scenario, and I'm not sure this may have even been a scenario brought up in the report, but you could have a scenario of somebody age 16 or 17 that for whatever reason is no longer with their immediate family due to whatever circumstances. But in that scenario, would the parents in that case be able to have that person, that teen, involuntarily treated? 
not if they're over 16 or over. Um, the parents, parents though, can um, request detention of their young person if they are under 16. And we do see that. It's actually characterized as a voluntary admission at the request of the parent, even if the young person doesn't agree. But one of the challenges we had is we don't know how often that happens either. So all of our stats with respect to involuntary detention doesn't actually capture those young people under the age of 16 whose parents might have um, uh, approached the, or requested that they be detained under the Mental Health Act. Does the report look at any scenarios where it's proven or it's considered that it is the best option in extreme cases? We don't take a look at that directly, but I have to say, I think it's so important. Thank you for raising that. This is an important tool in the toolkit. There are some young people, by virtue of their serious mental health crises or co-occurring conditions, that, in fact, it's best for them and the well-being of the, and their safety um, that they do be involuntarily detained. So we're not suggesting that it isn't appropriate at all. Um, and there are many situations in which, and people will share with you, situations in which young people have found that helpful. And in fact, the young people we spoke with didn't disagree with their diagnosis. They knew they needed help. But what we were raising is that once a young person is detained, there are a number of procedural safeguards and approaches that are not helpful and are, are, are causing harm and adding to the trauma, which gets in the way of the healing that we want for these young people. Uh, did the report also show in looking at kind of the breakdown of how people who spoke uh, identified, did it show an overrepresentation then when we're talking about people uh, from First Nations or Indigenous people? Yes, definitely. In terms of the young people that we um, uh, were able to connect with, um, there was no overrepresentation of First Nations, Métis and urban children. Furthermore, the Ministry of Health indicated anecdotally that they felt there was an overrepresentation of, of Indigenous children. But unfortunately, there isn't data, so we don't know the extent of it. But certainly, uh, practitioners um, and uh, young people themselves definitely have noted, and First Nations communities have noted, that there is a greater likelihood that Indigenous children will be detained. Uh, it includes 14 recommendations uh, that uh, that are that have been put forward uh, by you in this report to improve the system. Uh, if there was one thing that you would like to see adopted right away, or what do you think could be done to help us get on that path of making it a better system? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things I look at, what are the most extreme things that are happening to children and how do we address that? So one of the things that we spoke about is the way that discipline or isolation, seclusion and restraint are used. And we have some concerns about that. There is a lack of oversight and clarity, regulatory criteria. So I would say, first and foremost, that should be addressed because, of course, if you isolate or restrain someone, medically restrain someone, that's an additional layer of um, constraints or disrespect in some cases for dignity and liberty. So definitely address that. The other thing that's I think really important is recognizing that young people should be engaged in decisions about their kind of treatment that they that they might find helpful even if the medical professionals disagree and there's a different course than the, what the young person wants, at least making sure that they have an opportunity to understand what's happening to them and that they have some say when they're capable. 
So those would be two things I'd start with. All right. Very uh, interesting report. Uh, We'll have to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for being with us. Well, a big day. People watching what is happening in the U.S. as this is President Donald Trump's last full day in office. A lot of talk as well about pardons. We know that Trump has already issued two waves of pardons in the past uh, recent month. Uh, He also met with advisors on Sunday and we are told he was finalizing a list of more than 100 pardons that are expected throughout or at some point in the day today. So what is the history of presidential pardons, and we wanted to look at some of the more controversial ones. Anil Hira is a professor of political science at Simon Fraser University and joins us on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Sure thing. Uh, this is something that uh, we, we talk about it quite often, but I, I got thinking about it earlier today about uh, the history of it, and it has been controversial in the past. How did uh, the U.S. even get into this system where it did have presidential pardons? Well, it's written into the Constitution as a power of the presidency. And, uh, you know, I would suspect that it goes back to uh, the legacy from uh, UK uh, parliamentary rules where probably the monarch or the English king had this right. And it was just passed down uh, through uh, tradition into uh, the U.S. as they formed their country. Uh, it seems uh, like it's, uh, I mean, it's not uncommon when we see presidents, outgoing presidents, issue a number of pardons. Is that kind of abuse of the tool or is that what it's there for? Well, you know, the norms and customs have been uh, that uh, it's used very sparingly and it's used for cases where the punishment uh, uh, meted out has viewed as being too harsh or a uh, person has uh, shown that they have uh, Uh, done uh, some fair amount of redemption or that there were questions about the case. You know, this has occurred in some cases with uh, prisoners on death row. In all those cases, it's thoroughly vetted by the Justice Department uh, before it goes to the president's uh, desk for signature. Uh, So Trump has broken with norms uh, in this regard as he has in other regards. Um, The one uh, most famous one, of course, was uh, President Ford's pardoning of of outgoing uh, President Nixon, who resigned from Watergate. And that one, too, I know there there were many questions, and it was asked repeatedly why Gerald Ford didn't make it a requirement that Nixon admit his guilt before getting the pardon. Is Is it fair to say, though, if you do accept a pardon, that is an admission of guilt? Yeah, I think uh, there would be that implication, and that has been uh, raised uh, in this regard as well in terms of Trump's uh, potentially pardoning his son-in-law, his family members, and maybe even himself. And I know uh, there are many reports today uh, citing sources, uh, anonymous sources, though, saying that uh, Trump has been advised that pardoning himself would be a bad idea uh, for that very reason, that it would imply or would bring in uh, some some bit of an admission of guilt on his part. Well, it's not even clear. I mean, <laughs> no one before this has actually thought of pardoning themselves. And so it's not even clear whether it's constitutionally possible. Um, it's a, a very ambiguous uh, terrain. And so... Um, It would be controversial both in uh, legal terms and in terms of the potential of him running for office again for the reasons you mentioned. Uh, There have been other cases, too, when you talk about uh, Donald Trump, uh, considering some of his family members, um, other presidents uh, as well that have pardoned family members. Is that something, too, because on the surface that doesn't uh, that does look like you're favoring uh, people in your family? Yeah, I'm not aware of any previous presidents. Uh, I think maybe Carter might have done uh, one of them, but it's, it's, it's not something that happens very often. 
I know that uh, Trump has already pardoned Jared Kushner's father, uh, Charles Kushner, and so uh, he's already on that path. And I guess at this point, when we talk about, in this case, the number of pardons that Donald Trump, again, uh, two waves of pardons in the past month, and this final list of more than 100, uh, what do you think of just the sheer number of pardons? Well, it's another way, you know, uh, that demonstrates how Trump's mind works. You know, he's kind of a a patrimonial uh, guy, patriarchal guy that wants everyone to uh, feel like uh, kind of like a mob boss that he's handing out favors to them, and he's basically currying favor with people uh, that may be able to support him in future runs. Um, so some of his pardons have been uh, genuinely uh, bona fide in terms of uh, you know prisoners who had uh, very long sentences based on drug offenses, minor drug offenses, or you know historical figures like the boxer Jack Johnson or Susan Anthony, Susan B. Anthony, um, to restore their reputations. Um, Some of them have been very operational in terms of people that were implicated in the previous impeachment trial, like Michael Flynn or Roger Stone. And then some of them are just strategic uh, people who may be able to help him. Uh, These include, you know, the conservative pundit uh, Dinesh D'Souza, a number of uh, Republican uh, lawmakers on the the, uh, state level, um, and also financiers like Michael Milliken. You know, these are people who may be able to help him in a future run. Actually, there's one Canadian who was also pardoned, Conrad Black. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, when you go down the list, it's, it's quite amazing at just how many familiar names there are on that list. Uh, I know today there have been stories uh, as well about the fact that uh, that musician Lil Wayne and uh, I suppose you could call him reality show star Joe Exotic are possibilities on the list. That almost seems like it's a bit of a detraction, though, to keep people from looking or, or maybe going over uh, the actual list and looking at some of the other names. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think uh, it's difficult uh, to say the extent to which these particular people uh, merited pardons, whereas others didn't. You know, in some cases, uh, the names of uh, prisoners uh, have been brought to him by celebrities like Kim Kardashian. And so there doesn't seem to be any proper process in place like there was under Obama. Under Obama, there was a whole system through the Justice Department uh, before the pardon even reached his desk. And we have seen cases, and you mentioned the case of Kim Kardashian, that she brought forward a case of a woman who had been imprisoned, and it was a sentence that I think a lot of people agreed with, that the sentence did not appear to fit the crime. There are certainly more examples of that, but when we see somebody using the pardon system so much, I mean, on the one hand, it feels like they're questioning the justice system or calling out the justice system, perhaps, for sentences that aren't realistic or that aren't that aren't that don't fit the crime. But it's hard to kind of figure out, is that actually what's happening here, or is it an abuse of the system? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, there's a growing consensus in the U.S. uh, that there is a dying, uh, there is a dire need for justice reform. Uh, The Republicans support lighter sentences and uh, more uh, remedial uh, work for criminals because of budgetary reasons. And Democrats want to do it because of uh, racial uh, discrimination and, uh, you know, the social injustices embedded in the system. Um, so we're going to see criminal justice reform. Uh, even Trump in his first year uh, signed a reduced uh, federal man- uh, mandated sentencing uh, bill. And uh, we'll start to see that filter down to the state level. Uh, that's a manifestation of Black Lives Matter. Um, but the pardons aren't going to do anything to solve these kind of structural, deeply embedded issues. And then the other part is uh, is the one you mentioned, which is um, if you're doling out pardons like favors, 
um, it's really an abuse of the power, and it, it uh, implicates the people who've been pardoned, and, and it kind of just taints the whole uh, veneer of the Trump administration as being involved in things that it shouldn't have been in. All right. Uh, and you'll hear, I will leave it there for today. But thank you so much for your time and joining us to talk about this. Sure. It's my pleasure. Well, we are going to talk a little bit about vaccine rollout in this country. And earlier today, we heard from Major General Danny Fortin. He is the man in charge of Canada's coronavirus vaccine rollout. He talked about delivery delays dealing with the Pfizer doses. In general, uh, we anticipate a significant decline in Pfizer supply over the next three weeks, uh, followed by a ramping back up of supply. Uh, there will be considerable impact across all provinces, asymmetric across the board. Uh, the overall impact over the next month um, is in the range of 50% decrease of expected allocations. But this impact, as I said, will be asymmetric. This week, as our shipment was being prepared, um, there is minimal impact. And in fact, we're receiving 82% of what we had uh, originally planned on receiving. And that's uh, the distribution is currently on the way. And we expect to have this done by uh, by mid to end week. However, next week's uh, deliveries have been deferred by Pfizer in, this, uh, in, in their entirety. To clarify, we're informed by Pfizer this morning that we um, uh, uh, that the Pfizer vaccine uh, to Canada in the week of 25 January. It will start back up in the first two week uh, two weeks of February to expected numbers um, modified numbers as we as we shared last week. So about half of what we had originally expected. The delay is part uh, is because Pfizer is scaling up the manufacturing capacity in Europe, and it's a move officials say would impact the vaccine's production for a short period. But what does it mean for the vaccine here? Let's bring in Dr. Horatio Bach, adjunct professor at the Department of Medicine at UBC. Thanks so much for being with us. Hello, thank you for having me. What is your response when you hear about the fact that during the week of January 25th, we're not going to get any deliveries of the vaccine because of this blip in production? Um, well, I, um, I mentioned in previous um, interviews in different channels that uh, when came the point if the second dose uh, should be uh, delayed or not, because, you know, we can vaccinate more people and the second dose will wait. And one of my points was, you know, the problem is you never know if the supplier will stand where they have to produce. You never know what may happen. You know, it's in the factory can have a problem, and now exactly the problem is coming. And they say we will catch up around March. But again, you know, this renovation of the, of the produce, the manufactured production, um, you know, it's like when you renovate your house, you know, sometimes you're a constructor, sometimes the guy from the tile, they have problems, they don't come on time, it's broken, and you have to, you never know if you will get right now at uh, the specific time. They say they will come, but, you know, for me it's better uh, comparing to the delay of the second dose that that may be the problem today is cover the dose, the first dose with the second dose, what we have, and then wait for the new one because in my point of view giving to everyone the first dose and wait for the second you never know when the second will come and that's been an ongoing conversation do you think that this delay in production also kind of hammers home that point that deal with the vaccine you have for exactly that reason who's to say if there's going to be another blip in the production line you, you know, we don't know, and that's the point that uh, it's, it's, it's kind of contractor you have. You know, they say, I will provide you that amount, but maybe another problem. And if they have delay with that, they will have delay with all the world. 
And that's the point they have to minimize the doses they give to every country. And you don't know what can be another problem next week or in two weeks. That's the reason, again, better to vaccinate two doses and you know that this group is already covered rather than wait. And, you know, the problem is when you delay the second dose, we don't know what will happen because the, the clinical trial that was done, it was exactly, you know, after three weeks, the second dose after three weeks for Pfizer and four weeks uh, for Moderna. But if you go away from that, we don't know. It may be the body cannot uh, elicit a good response. And then when you give the second dose, it's so far away that your body will recognize as the first dose. So it starts to be a little complicated, this situation. And even that people, some comments came to say, okay, let's give, you know, one dose Pfizer and one dose Moderna. That is also is wrong because... They are targeting they're the same platform, but they are targeting different parts of the virus. Right. And if you start mixing and matching doses, don't you potentially break the contract that you've signed with the company? Well, I think that uh, at this point we need so many uh, doses that I think that, you know, whatever we get will be okay. We are far away to vaccinate all the population. As per today, we have only even not 1.7% of the population that is vaccinated. Even here in um, um, sorry, in Canada, I think there are uh, about 600,000 for the first dose and only 37,000 for the second dose. So, um, you know, it's very small, the number compared to the population that we have. And when you talk about that as well, because there has been a lot of talk of delaying that dose and pushing it even to 35 or 42 days. And we've heard from health officials in this province that while many vaccines have a minimum amount of time that you can put between the first and second dose, it's not so much that they have a maximum amount of time. Well, you know, if, if it's one week delay for the second, instead three or to four weeks, I don't think will be a problem. But when you start to delay more and more, remember that everyone is different. Not everyone will react in the same way. Some people will develop a strong immune response. Some people will be very weak. And those that develop a very weak response, we don't know if you delay longer, the first one will be recognized by the body. Maybe when you inject the second one for these people that they have a very, um, no weak response, but not as strong as other people, um, they will get, a, you know, as the first dose. And you cannot evaluate that. That will take another month, over months, to see if you develop uh, antibodies and if the antibodies they catch for a long time, especially that we know that after six months, people, they recover from the disease, um, you know, without any vaccine. And the level of protection is fading or disappearing between four to six week, uh, months, sorry. So we don't know what is the effect for the long time because it's a little uh, complicated. This virus is not as uh, other responses, basically, other viral responses to vaccine. So in the big picture, as we're getting more and more vaccine and trying to get vaccine to people, do you think this production delay this week of getting no doses from Pfizer will have a long term impact? Well, they say that will they, we know we don't know when they will come. If they say in one week we'll resume, apparently it's not going to happen. So these people that they need to get the second dose now and we don't have, they they, they have to be delayed. And then uh, we, we need to see what will happen. That's the reason I say, you know, first thing, when you receive the dose, use these doses to vaccinate twice right. the, your group, not wait one uh, for the second dose to come wherever it's coming. So if you cover enough with two doses, the group you are vaccinated, that is fine. But if you give one and you delay, 
the, the, the answer is we don't know what may happen. And I think we'll have multiple scenarios. So people will be infected or not infected, and, you know, the immune response will be not be so strong. So there are multiple scenarios, and we, we don't know yet. It's something we are studying. All right. Well, we're going to watch and see what happens next with those doses arriving. Uh, Dr. Back, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about another story. And this was a report that came out from Flu Watch. It's a Flu Watch report from the Public Health Agency of Canada. And as expected, the number of flu cases is way, way down uh, this year compared to other years. I think something like uh, they said there had been 51 lab reported flu cases since flu season began. And that's down from about 15,000 that we would normally see at this time of year. Um, Some might say, well, that proves that, yes, the factors that what we're doing to stop COVID are working, but COVID is much more infectious. Or is it because flu is imported? It comes in on international flights and from people moving around and we're not doing that. Uh, Yeah, you are right. It can be one uh, one option. There is another option that people don't don't, uh, figure out that uh, uh, a high percentage of the uh, the flu virus we get is coming through bird migration and starting from Alaska and from Alaska is coming down. So the birds basically are sick and they, they, they shed in their feces also the virus. So that's a way we can get as well. So apparently, you know, because the global warming, may, they, these, these birds may not migrate as they used to do, you know, looking for warmer places because in the place where they live, it's not so cold. So they stay and they, they don't bring as well. So that can be another factor, but definitely I supported the, the fact that, you know, all this uh, uh, sanitize, uh, sanitizing your hands or uh, uh, social distance or cover your mask, they have a huge impact in the level of flu at this part of the year. So we can see around the world, not only here. Hmm. Uh, do you think it's also that more people, because there was more of a push for people to get flu shots this year? Yes, as well. Uh, remember, the flu shot is about 50% uh, effectivity, but definitely, yes. It's more people, they were like, uh, you know, uh, they recommended to get the, the flu shot. And also, it's another factor that contributes to the decrease of the case that is great as well. Because now when you go to the clinician and you say, I have the symptoms, you, you never know if it's flu or a COVID-19, a, a COVID-19. So, but today, because the flu is so, so low, when you have these symptoms, your clinician or your doctor, family doctor will say, go and test mm-hmm. for COVID-19 because that is much higher compared to the flu that is extremely low this year. And this is something that we could, uh, you know, differentiate very fast. All right. Dr. Back, always great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making some time for us today. Thank you for the invitation. Stay safe. Well, we have been covering gang-related crimes, talking about the numerous shootings in Metro Vancouver, the Fraser Valley, in the past few weeks, how it appears that that crime is on the rise, which is why reporting suspicious or criminal activity is so important, and we are often reminded to do so. Our show contributor, John Jang, is joining us now to talk about what a year it was for Crime Stoppers and why those behind Crime Stoppers say it is so important to pick up the phone and make that report. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. You've heard of them many times before, and chances are you've seen or heard their commercials urging you to give them a call if you have any tips on crimes that haven't been solved or if you know anything about potential criminal activity. But have you ever wondered what the results of those tips actually turn out to be? Well, today we can actually answer that question as we're now joined by Linda Annis, Executive Director of the Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. Linda, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. My pleasure. 
Now, before we get into some of the numbers shared by Crime Stoppers this morning, for somebody that hasn't used this service before, what's the one thing they should know before picking up that phone? Well, when somebody calls Crime Stoppers, the first thing that they need to know is that they will always remain anonymous. Oftentimes, people are afraid to report, particularly around things like gang activity. But if they call Crime Stoppers, they remain anonymous. So it doesn't matter if somebody's arrested, they go to court. Nobody will ever know who it was that left that information. That is such an important reminder because there might indeed be fears that if somebody found out that you were the one who reported them, that you might be the victim of repercussion. So keeping that identity secret is such a vital element to all of this, and that is one thing that has never changed with Crime Stoppers. And I think it's also very important to know that you can call Crime Stoppers 24-7, and if you don't speak English, we can take your tip in 115 different languages. That is such an excellent resource to provide because we know the population of Metro Vancouver is extremely diverse. And indeed, there might be a lot of people who actually do have something to share, but English might not be their first language. So the fact that they can do this in their own language, it's a great asset to have. Well, it's it's unbelievable. And, you know, we're open, as I say, all the time. So if you've got that minute to make a call, we all have to play our part in keeping our community safe. The police can't be everywhere and they rely on people to call in when they see things to say something. Get involved. Do your part. It's one way that you can contribute to your community by making a simple phone call, making sure that everybody is safe. Now, Linda, as we know, it seems gang violence is on the rise. We have seen a number of high-profile cases across Metro Vancouver over the past number of weeks and months, which is why having Crime Stoppers available to the public is so important. Can you share with us some of the stats that are specific to gang activity and what Crime Stoppers uh, did in 2020? Unfortunately, it is a surge in gang activity uh, in the Lower Mainland. And, you know, we're urging everyone to call in. And so far, we've had a very successful year in 2020. We've received over 500 tips about gang activity and illegal guns. And that's resulted uh, in 21 arrests of gang members that were involved with illegal gun activity and more than 30 charges laid. Uh, so it's very, very significant. Uh, but I we could do better. People need to call in more often if they know something. Don't be reluctant to call Crime Stoppers because last time when we had uh, a resurgence of uh, gang activities a couple of years ago, we got in excess of 2,500 tips, which resulted in 15 gang members getting arrested and another over 100 people getting arrested for having illegal uh, guns. In some cases with young gang members, we hear that close friends or relatives saw they were headed down the wrong path, but either decided to cut ties with this person or decided against contacting the authorities. And in certain cases, it seems like if they had just reached out and contacted Crime Stoppers, they might have been able to prevent this person from going down that path and maybe even saving their life. You can save not only the potential gang member's life and so that he or she can turn it around, but the public is oftentimes at risk, too. There's stray ballots, unfortunately, that uh, fly around from time to time, and an innocent party can take that bullet. And if you know something, it's very, very critical that you get the information to Crime Stoppers uh, so that we can pass it on to the police and act as the intermediary and ensure that individuals that are conducting this kind of activity are arrested and lives will be saved. Another great point. Now, aside from gang-specific numbers, 
how many arrests and charges were laid last year that were a direct result of tips that actually came through Crime Stoppers? Well, last year, Crime Stoppers got over 5,000 tips. Now, many of those tips are still under investigation. But as a result of, of some of those tips last year, we were able to get arrests for 72 people and 135 charges were laid based on Crime Stoppers information. And also, very importantly, there was 182 guns that were taken off the street. At the end of the day, it's all about making sure you're building a safe community. And one thing about Crime Stoppers is that while it's a 1-800 number, the easiest thing that you can do is save that number into your contact list so that if you need it, you're always going to have it available right away. And the the approach I have is it's better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. And the other great thing to do is to download our app. We have a P3 app, which is available both uh, in the Android store or the Apple store. You can download it onto your phone. You've got handy to leave any information about any suspect criminal activity. doesn't have to be gang-related. It can be about anything where you see suspicious activity. We encourage you to call us. Making a difference one tip at a time. She is Linda Annis, Executive Director of the Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. Linda, thank you so much for giving us some time here today. My pleasure as always.